So today we are in our final sermon on this little mini-series on the Nicene Creed. I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And our scripture reading connected to that is from Psalm 16, a psalm of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. This might actually be better translated to the saints in the land. They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And then this is what he wants to say. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path to life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. And Father, we ask you now to open our hearts because these things are really quite beyond our tiny little minds. Bless us in Jesus' good name. Amen. So I'm going to confess something right up front here, and that is that as a son of the church, by that I mean I've been in the church my entire life, almost 50 years, I have been tempted at times to feel that the people who are most interested in the world to come are the least interesting people in this world. I mean, if the afterlife is your thing, that has got to siphon a bunch of excitement away from this life, right? And you meet people like this, and, you know, it's not only that they're just really down on all the sin in the world, in this world, which is understandable, but often there's just this sense that it's all, everything here is just a wasted investment. It's all going to burn in the end. It is at best a distraction from getting yourself ready for the life to come. So that was my boyhood perspective a lot, and I found a great relief as I began to study the Bible more carefully and began to get exposed to some good theology. It was a relief to discover that that tension that I felt between this world and the world to come was actually a false tension, and in fact, to realize that I probably had things almost exactly backwards. That not only is a lively interest in the world to come, entirely compatible with a lively interest in the things of this world, but in fact, it is the reality of that life to come that enables you and me to truly enjoy life in this world without emptiness and without despair. Because there's a problem with life in this world. You guys know it well, but the way the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes describes it, this is the basic problem of the world. What is crooked, he says, cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. That's the basic problem with this world. What is crooked cannot be straightened out. And what is lacking, what is missing, like you can't even count it. So much is bent and broken. You can see that in the world. So much good that we long for is just missing. 
And you could ask the question, which many people in our generation do, well, then why not just fix it? You know, if something's broken, if it's bent, you straighten it. If you're missing some good, go get it. But it's not that simple, as you know, because this is the probably most, the most basic thing about life in this world is that it is constantly changing. And that's what complicates any attempt to respond to what's crooked and what's missing. The world is constantly changing. So that by the time you grab on to, let's say, this crooked thing you want to straighten out, I don't know what it is. Some practical problem, some relational problem, whatever. You try to grab it and straighten it out. The problem is by the time you do that, the world has already moved on. And the ripple effects of that bad thing are just rippling, and you like can't you can't stop the ripples. And you know, more stuff is being twisted as you're trying to straighten this out over here. The world's just moving on, so that, that's, it just complicates things. It's the same if you try to fill in some good thing that you realize you've been missing. By the time you sort of grab that good thing, the world has moved on, and you discover to your surprise that that good thing turns out maybe not to be so satisfying as you had hoped it would. Or you get it, but then it's taken away. Or you get some good thing, but then this bad thing over here just makes it kind of hard to even focus on that good thing because it just feels like, you know, this is so much worse. Or, you know, this is inevitable, you just die and somebody else gets that good thing. And so whether it is a good thing that we're trying to hold on to or some evil that we're trying to get a hold of and straighten out, we find, as the preacher puts it in Ecclesiastes, that we are grasping at vapor. You ever try to grasp a puff of vapor? He describes it also as shepherding wind. Send your sheepdog out to shepherd the wind. You just are grabbing stuff and it just slips through your fingers even as you try to grab it. And yet, the difficult thing is that with all that vapor that we're chasing, we cannot stop our hearts from hungering for solid goodness that's not vapor. And we can't stop our hearts from hating the twistedness of evil. So it could seem for really thoughtful people like the only options if you're living in this world are either drugs or distractions or despair. But actually there's an answer to this that I've been describing and it is found in this simple credo, this simple creed, this part of our creed. I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And I want to try to point out today that that is not an escape. That's a hope. And an escape and a hope are not the same thing. We'll see this as we go. That is a hope. I believe, I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And I want to take a moment with King David's reflection on that hope here in Psalm 16. And I want to actually start in the second half of the psalm. So we're going to look at verses 7 through 11 first. And I want to talk there about our hope of life. And then I want to back up to the first six verses to talk about our life of hope. So first of all, our hope of life in the latter part of this psalm. Now you'll notice in verse 7 that some things are keeping David up at night. We, he doesn't tell us what they are, but he's up at night. You know, some of you know what that's like. Hours and hours lying awake, stuff just going on in your heart and head. But in the night seasons, as he's wrestling with whatever it is, God is counseling him. He talks about God giving him counsel in verse 7, and his own heart is counseling him. And this is the counsel from the Lord and from his own heart. Set the Lord always before you. Set the Lord always before you. He says in verse 8, God is counseling me, my heart is instructing me, and I've set the Lord always before me. Now, what does that really mean? If I said to you, you need to set the Lord always before you, what am I saying? Well, it could just mean that David realizes that he needs to remind himself that where he is, whatever's going on in his life, God is with him, 
right? That's one way of setting the Lord before you. To realize where I am right now, whatever's going on, God is here with me. You've set the Lord before you. And that's true. David does say in verse 8 that the Lord is at my right hand. Right here where I am in this tough situation, God is at my right hand. That is true. That is true. And it steadies him. He says, because the Lord is at my right hand, I'm not going to be shaken. But it's, you'll notice as you read on, it's not the whole truth. David has set God before him in a way that not only steadies him where he is, he has set the Lord before him in a way that he says makes his heart, his whole being rejoice, and even his flesh, even his physical body, like rests in hope because David has set God before him all the way into the far future, in fact, beyond even the other side of Sheol. So it's not just that David has set the Lord before him where he is. He, he has looked to the far future. In fact, he has looked to Sheol. Now, you guys probably know that that's the Hebrew word that just means the place of the dead. Like after you die in the Old Testament, you go to Sheol. That's just where the dead are. And David has got the Lord before him all the way out there and the farthest horizon of the future, even on, to the other side of Sheol. To the other side of death, he has set the Lord before him. Because he goes on in verse 10 to say, these are quite famous words, I'm sure you've heard them. You know, he says that corruption in Sheol, you know, you die, you rot. <laughs> corruption in Sheol will not be his end. You will not abandon my soul to the place of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. In that death experience, God is going to still have his, his hold on David. And he says in verse 11, God, you are going to make known to me, you're going to reveal to me the path to life at another level entirely beyond the corruption of Sheol. And in that life that is coming for David, it is not that David is going to be setting God at his right hand, setting the Lord before him. He says, God, you're going to set me before you. <laughs> you're going to set me at your right hand. And at your right hand, God, in your presence, there is going to be man, joy. He, he I, 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 in my study this morning, I spent a long time trying to figure out how I would describe this to you. In your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. I, I don't know what that's like. You take, the, you take the happiest moment of your life. I mean, there are moments that are, we feel joy. It always fades. There's always some bitterness mixed in. Fullness of joy, I mean, it is, it is joy that so far exceeds our experience in this world that we actually lack language to talk about it. I mean, what is it like to be filled with joy where it is literally running over the edge of your capacity for joy and God keeps expanding your capacity so you can have more? I mean, it's just joy-like. It would probably drive you out of your mind if you experienced it in this world. And he says, there are, at your right hand, God, there are pleasures forevermore. Every pleasure you experience in this world eventually kind of tarnishes. Those pleasures at God's right hand, they only get more glorious with time. That's the life David looks forward to. And the thing about it is, all of that life and joy and pleasure will be in the body. It'll be in his physical body, his flesh. You feel this thing you're sitting in right now, this body of yours, that flesh, he says, God is going to raise it from corruption. Now, I'd like you to notice a couple of crucial things about this hope. Still talking about our hope of life. 
The first thing about this hope is that this is not just gifts. This is God. This hope is not just gifts. It's God. What makes that life to come what it is? Joy beyond words. Pleasures that never fade. What makes that world and that life what it is, is God. Now, I must tell you again, as a guy who was raised in the church, I have stumbled over this so much. (laughs) Because this is embarrassing to admit to you, but when I think about spending eternity in God's presence, that does not excite me. And the reason it doesn't excite me is because I can actually relate to good things in creation. Like, I have experienced some things in this world with my five senses that are delightful. And I can imagine having lots and lots, you know, it's like these people say, well, heaven for me will just be like all the best cigars. You know, whatever your thing is. You know, like, hell will be the absence of cigars, I guess. I don't know. Um, I mean, we, we think in very, very earthy categories. It is hard for me to imagine being face-to-face with God and having that be something that is just causes me to overflow with joy. And what that shows, brothers and sisters, is how ignorant I am of God. Do you know what, you know what I think this will be like to step into the presence of God? I think this will be like having been born, raised, so you've never known anything else, having spent your entire life in a desert. And because you've never been anywhere except this desert, you don't know anything else. And so it seems to you like a pretty decent desert because every once in a while you get a tiny little drop of water. And it's a nice little drop of water and it kind of refreshes you and it kind of tastes good and, you know, that's good. And every once in a while you really discover, you know, you strike gold and you have this little shallow puddle somewhere that you run across. You coat your face and you drink and, you know, you feel a little better and, you know, you're used to the constant pain of thirst. But, you know, it's not a terrible desert because you at least have a few drops of water and a few puddles. And all of a sudden you are ushered into this moment when you stand and you find yourself face to face. with a mountain range that is just stunningly green and it stretches on and on and on beyond what your eyes can begin to see and thundering down from the high peaks of this mountain range as you stand there are just roaring rivers and falls of the sweetest, freshest water pouring down to where you are. And no matter how many centuries you walk into this mountain range, you can just sink your head into pool after pool of sweet, refreshing, ice-cold water, and every sip is life and healing and joy and health, and you just find yourself completely unable to take in how this could even be. I mean, brothers and sisters, you look at the heavens and the earth. If these are full of the goodness of the Lord, and they are, I mean, have you seen pictures from the Hubble telescope of what's out there in the reaches of space? Have you ever, you know, watched one of these Netflix documentaries about the mountain ranges? I mean, full mountain ranges down on the floor of the ocean and all the creatures down there just doing their like floor, ocean floor thing that God made them to do. And then you come back to like Middle Earth and you look around at just the... the sheer natural and cultural beauties of life in this world, and you look at all this, you say, this is such good stuff. This is all the goodness of the Lord. So what will it be to finally behold him to whom all of this is a handful of dust? Do you realize that as you think about what goodness even is, every thought in your head about goodness is a thought planted there because of God's good gifts? When I say to you, what's the good life? You start talking, you're talking about stuff God made. 
You're talking about, talking about stuff that God himself invented and gave to the humankind to delight in and to enjoy and to nourish and sustain us. What then will it be to meet the giver himself, the inventor, the, the one who spoke it all into existence and loves it more than we do? Do you think God is going to disappoint? And it shows my ignorance of myself too. It shows not only ignorance of God, it shows ignorance of myself. Can I say something to you about you that you probably don't know about you? It is your nature to thirst for a goodness that has no limits and that never changes. You cannot ultimately quench your thirst on anything less than that. You are made by God himself to thirst for a goodness that is beyond all bounds and that never fades or changes. That is not a desire that some religious institution imposed on you. That is inherent within your nature itself. And when you and I try to turn away from that desire for goodness without limit and without change, we say, no, I'm going to quench my thirst over here in lesser things. You become a walking self-contradiction you are now fighting against your very nature. And the unavoidable symptom of turning away from your nature is restlessness. This is not just gifts, it is God. There's something else about this hope. It's not just relief, it's reversal. See, relief is what escapists want. Relief is, I'm tired of life in this body, I'm tired of life in this world, get me off this burning ship, please, God. You know what God says in response to that? Get me out of the body, you know, just get me out of the world, I just want to escape, you know, I'm going to blast my mind with acid, or I'm going to find, you know, suicide, or some other way out, I mean, it's escapism, right? And we have a lot of religious versions of this, you know, kind of pie in the sky when I die. You know, my little gold mansion up on the hilltop. Get me off the burning ship, that's a desire for relief, that's escapism. God, God will have none of it. You know what God says? He says, no, because this is my ship. <laughs> this is my ship, this burning ship. And though this ship sink all the way to the ocean's lowest floor, I am going to raise this ship and I am going to outfit this thing with engines and cabins like eye has never seen and ear has never heard. It is going to be awesome. That is what we call resurrection. Resurrection is not just relief, an escape hatch in the cosmos. Resurrection is the undoing of the ruin of sin. Yes? Resurrection is the reversal of the effects of sin. But it is not merely resuscitation, because you could say, well, a resuscitation is also a reversal of death and a reversal of sin's effect. But a resuscitation only gets you back where you were. It only puts you back on the burning ship. No, resurrection produces something that is indescribably better than it was before sin. Your body is not just going to be restored to you. Your body is going to be glorified. Uh, what does that mean? Don't know. <laughs> Eye has not seen. Ear has not heard. You're going to be a wild thing to look at. C.S. Lewis said, if I could see you now, the way you will look then, I would be tempted to fall down and worship you. You're going to be unbelievable with the glory of God. Not just restored, but glorified. All of sin's effects reversed. And Romans 8 
tells us, the Apostle Paul tells us, that that resurrection, that reversal, the undoing of sin's effects, that is the destiny not just of your body and my body. That is the destiny of the entire creation, which groans like a woman in labor to be relieved of the decay that sin has brought into the world. And it is in this great reversal that we call resurrection of our bodies and the cosmos. It is in that great reversal and nowhere else that we find a couple of things that our generation needs so much. One, we find an ultimate answer to the problem of evil. I find myself now talking to young person after young person after young person after young person who have this very, very hard question that they are wrestling with and it's an excellent question. Why would, no it's stronger than that, how could an all-good, all-powerful God allow the evils that happen under the sun? How could he allow these evils? If he's all-good and he's all-powerful, what is going on? That is such a good question. And you know, the resurrection gives us a very powerful answer to that. And it is this, that God allows these things only temporarily. Do you follow? He allows them only temporarily. Joseph had a traumatic experience with his brothers. They tried to kill him. Years later, he could say, as you know very well, God, meant, God took what you meant for evil. God meant it for good. God has reversed. And in fact, what Joseph experienced in fellowship with his brothers in that reconciliation at the end of the book of Genesis is so much more glorious than could have possibly happened if they're all just sitting around the table as a bunch of young men around, you know, in their father's house fighting for their entire lives. God brought something beautiful out of that wreck that perhaps could not have even happened if things had stayed where there was not so much sin. So God allows what seems just like an, an evil that has broken everything and yet out of it, in that temporary thing that he allows, he is bringing forth ultimately resurrection. Jesus' scars. Do you know, you think about Jesus' scars. Are the scars of Jesus now not utterly beautiful? Because they have no killing power. But they are scars that are actually eternal emblems of the love of God. The worst crime ever was the killing of Jesus. The worst evil ever, the killing of Jesus. And yet, in a way, it's only temporary, the evil, so that God can bring resurrection. But this is not only an answer to the problem of evil. It is hope, this hope, this resurrection, it is hope for the whole man. Because this thing that we're looking at, that David's looking at as he looks beyond Sheol, it is not a disembodied spirit world. I actually get so nervous when evangelicals talk about heaven because what they inevitably seem to mean is I'm going to float around as a spirit forever. No, you are not. The ancient, you know, classical world had, had this idea too of kind of, you know, escaping from the body. You could just sort of be non-material. Perhaps that's a better life, this disembodied spirit world. That is not the hope. Nor, to bring this into the 21st century, nor is this thing we're hoping for a digital heaven where freed at last from the confines of our bodies, we get to relate to each other for all eternity through our preferred avatars, which really has become the great hope of our generation, to be able to free ourselves from all bodily constraints and relate to each other through self-selected, self-crafted avatars. And as attractive as that might sound to what Samuel James calls the worldview of disembodiment, 
that has now seized the reins of cultural power and is profoundly hostile to the body. I was saying to someone yesterday, is it any accident that the transgender movement of people being somehow disconnected from their bodies arose in the digital age where we've all become disconnected from our bodies because our most basic way of relating to the world now is mediated to a disembodied medium. By the way, if you've never read Samuel James's book, Digital Liturgies, please buy it this week and read it. But none of that is our hope. The hope, beloved, is for the whole man. It is you with your given body resurrected. And it is, it is I with my given body resurrected. It is us together in a restored and glorified physical creation where there is nothing crooked and there is nothing missing. And for all eternity, we are not going to enjoy a dull vacation. We are going to enjoy kingdom life, worship. Ah, oh, I want to sing with you guys there. Fellowship, dominion in love, missions for our Father King for all eternity in the world that is to come. And all of that, brothers and sisters, is what animates now in this present world our life of hope. If that's the hope of life, more briefly now in the first six verses, all that animates our life of hope. Because look at what happens as you back up in the psalm in David's life now because of this hope he has. See, escapism makes you want to stop living. Escapism says, I want to stop living. Hope enables you to start really living because it enables you to accept and to enjoy life in this world for what it actually is. Let me say that again. When you hope for the world that is to come, that hope of the world that is to come enables you to start really living life in this world because you finally are able to take life for what it is and realize that this life in this world as we know it now is not our destination, it's the journey. It's how God, our Father, under His care and under His instruction, the one who called us to His eternal glory, He is leading us, we are on the way under Him, to that life of the world to come, and this is, this is the way. God is leading us there. This is the journey. And notice how David's hope at the end of the psalm enables him in the first part of the psalm to live to the full, to live to the full as a few things. One is it makes David a sturdy worshiper. Because he has this hope, he says to God in the first couple of verses, I have no good apart from you. <laughs> You're it. Now, David's life is hard. He says in verse 1 that he needs refuge. So apparently he's running away from something. There's some hard things in his life, and God is his refuge. But David, in all the pain and difficulty of his circumstances, he is completely clear on one thing. It is better to suffer under God's hand than be anywhere else. It is better to be with this God and have a hard life than be anywhere else. He says in verse 1, I have no good apart from you. There is, <laughs> there's nothing out there apart from you. Brothers and sisters, some of you probably need to hear this this afternoon. If your life is hard, some of you are saying, ha ha, if. If your life is hard and you have God, you need exactly one thing. You need patience. That's all you need. You need patience. Because your hope is that the lowly will be exalted. The last will be first. Your invisible sufferings that nobody knows about or cares about, they will be publicly honored by the living God. Those who honor me, I will honor, God says. The unnoticed labors, I think often hear of moms. Such invisible work 
Those labors will be fully rewarded. Jesus himself will say to you, you were faithful in little. You will be made faithful in much. And David warns his fellows in verse 4 as he talks to these saints in the land, the excellent ones that he delights in. He says, we need to be very careful that we do not allow impatience to drive us into the arms of an idol. That you get kind of tired of walking with God because he's not doing stuff at the speed you want, and so you start looking for another God to kind of take over. And I, brothers and sisters, I would say to you, as David says to his countrymen, anything that says to you, hey, I'll give you the good life God is not giving you, is a serpent. Paul says of his co-worker Demas, he has forsaken me and forsaken Jesus because he loved this present world. He didn't mean by that Demas enjoyed life under God. He meant by that Demas decided eventually when it got really difficult to be a follower of Jesus that he would just get what he could get now. And he would not have to carry the burden of hope anymore. He would just take what he can get now and forget about all that pie in the sky. He needed to hear what C.S. Lewis says so pointedly about hope in, the, in his book Mere Christianity. He says, aim at heaven, aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. You know, a lot of you guys, you want your kids to be among the powerful, beautiful, brilliant people of the world because those are the things that Gentiles seek. You know what we want for the kids in this church? We want our kids to be among the faithful who walk with God in sturdy hope toward the resurrection. That is life. And David is a sturdy worshiper. He's also an encouraging friend. Because I've already said, verses 3 and 4, David really talking to his countrymen. And he just is shouting out to them, hey guys, don't, you know, I'm, I'm not following, we're not going after the idols. <laughs> we're, we're, we're sticking with God. He's life. And you know, when you are, feel like you're swimming against all the currents, and some of you guys know what this is like, you just feel like, man, I, could I just for one minute drift with the current? I'm just like swimming upstream all the time. And it feels like God isn't helping me. And I'm just tired. And I'm just like, is it worth it? There is nothing in those moments when you're exhausted and discouraged, there's nothing like looking over next to you and seeing a friend, you know, swimming next to you, splashing his way upstream or her way upstream, and this friend just keeps shouting to you, listen, this is the way, right? No other gods for us. <laughs> We've got the hope. Look at those ridiculous dumb idols over there. Steady on, chaps. Here we go. You need that sometimes. I'm like, thank you. Yeah, okay, swim on. And David does that in verse four. He's like, guys, this is it. We have the hope. Forget the, go the false gods. They're, they're, they're a mockery. You know, if you're familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, every Christian needs a faithful, yes? David is a sturdy worshiper. He's also an encouraging friend. And the last thing I'll point out is he is also, because of his hope, he is able to live in this world to the full as a grateful receiver. This famous line in verse 6, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. You know, without hope in God, if you don't have hope in God, the good things in this life are going to mock you in the end because they will show themselves inevitably to be vapor. You will have them and then you won't and you'll be frustrated. But if you have hope in God, then every good thing in your life is a little allotment, a little portion from his own hand to you. It is a little foretaste, it is a little cup of water, as it were, to say, here, take a drink. This is a foretaste of that whole 
inheritance that is to come. And David says, I have a good portion. I, the lines that God has allotted to me have fallen to me in a pleasant place. I am enjoying life because these things come to me from the hand of God. And so in this world, because of our hope, the saints, the people of God, we should be really, really into meals and music and friendships and stewarding our resources and building value and, and doing justice and advocating for righteous judgments. Why? Because we're trying to somehow make this world the world to come? No. We love these things. We fight for these things. We, we build and steward these things because these are God's good gifts. Fine, they're not the full joy and the full justice of the world to come, but they are absolutely signs and anticipations that God gives us of all that is to come. And so we can say, I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And so, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, I'm going to go home this afternoon and I'm going to eat my bread with joy. I'm going to drink my wine with a merry heart. And I'm going to live well with the wife of my youth and put on white garments and anoint my head with oil because God has already approved of me. And he will bring all things into judgment, whether they be good or evil. So my chief end, my whole duty, is to fear this God and keep his commandments. That is the whole duty of man. You know, I said at the beginning, my reason for this series is that I want so much for your joy to be full. I want you guys to have solid joy. And my prayer is that this sermon especially will serve that end. Amen.